So we had a, a couple of weeks off from the book of Genesis. We had a couple of people that came in and preached from a, a few different things that were really important for us in the life of our church. But now we're kind of diving back into the series of Genesis. And as we work through these stories of the patriarchs, the few, first few men of the faith, um, we need to read these stories with bifocals, all right? So I got a cup, I got bifocals up here. Everybody knows what bifocals are, right? So you have the part of the lens that you can see far off in the distance, and then you have a part of the lens that you use that your eyes are trained for as you put these glasses on that are more for reading things that are up close. And we need to have both the near and far in mind as we work through these stories, all right? So here's what I mean. Each of these stories reveal um, how God is fulfilling his promises, all right? So this is the, what we view in the distance. These are the things that are far off. We're looking into what God is doing here as we read through these stories, as he's fulfilling these promises that he's given to his people. So we're, we're seeing how God is taking these incremental steps and fulfilling the promises that he's given his people. But each of these stories also are instructing us in the Christian life. That's the near. That's what we need to pay attention to what God's doing in each of these individuals' lives because they pertain to what it looks like for us to walk with Jesus here and now. It speaks into our present story. And so we see both the near and far in the story that we're looking at tonight. We see steps towards God's provision of the promised land here that's happening, all right? God's teasing out this story, the promise that he gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We see steps towards that. That's the far off, but we also see the personal experience that each and every one of us in the day-to-day life experience as well, and that's conflict. You see conflict that happens here. That's the, the near, and that's the I feel led to focus on that latter part, the conflict tonight, instead of the former, even though they're both there and we'll see it as we work through the story. And so here's why I want to do this. Here's why I want to focus on the conflict side. It's because each and every single one of our lives is filled with conflict. Every day we experience conflict. Conflict, conflict is everywhere. And look, it doesn't take breaks. It doesn't have a day off. It's there every single day. You wake up and you experience conflict. Who gets the shower first in the morning, right? Or who's, who's the one that's getting coffee ready? What's for breakfast and who's making it? Like there's differing opinions on that as soon as you wake up in the morning, right? The, then conflict continues as you go to work or you run the home. You have failed deadlines and so you have to have conflict at work, and you have to have those hard conversations. You have things with little children, which you know are just these stages for conflict in your home. They're just a a constant conflict upriser within the home, aren't they? You're constantly having to manage conflict with kids. And then you close your day with conflict, right? Like you have the bedtime routine. If anybody has tried to put pajamas on a child at bedtime, you know that there's conflict, right? You also, who, who gets the TV at night? Who gets the final TV show? Who gets the sink before as you're getting ready for bed? You yourself, right? Like you have all these things. There's constantly conflict in your life, varying degrees, but it's always there. And so I think we need to talk about it. And I believe this story gives us a good pattern for how we deal with conflict in our life. So here's what we're going to do tonight, all right? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask this story a few questions. We're going to ask this story a few questions about conflict, and here they are. Here's the three. Why do we experience conflict? 
It's like, why? It, we all just want a relationship that has like the tag on the forehead of like no conflict, right? But it doesn't exist. So why do we experience conflict? Second, how do we resolve conflict? If it's always going to be there, then how do we live into it? What does it look like for us to step into conflict in a way that honors God, that reflects Jesus, and loves another person? And then thirdly, what's the key to conflict? Like, how, how do we, if this is going to be our life, what is like the sustaining force for us to be able to live into conflict? It seems like a huge burden, right? It seems like, I, I don't, why? Like, why is life filled with all this conflict? And why can't it just go away? And how do we manage it? How do we endure it? Well, I believe this passage gives us some answers to all these questions. And my prayer is that when we leave tonight, we have more clarity on how we can live like Jesus in a world that's filled with conflict and that it's inevitable. All right? That's my prayer for us tonight. So here's the first question that we'll ask of the passage. I just want to read through segments. Here's the reality, all right? I know that we had 18 verses up here. You may start off really strong, but it tapers off your attention towards the end, doesn't it? So we're going to just reread some of these parts. It's not because Lisa did a poor job of reading either. Lisa killed it. You're great. It's just our attention spans are terrible. <laughs> so here, let's ask the question, why do we experience conflict? We see why there's conflict in the first seven verses here, um, but I believe there's also some things that are deeper rooted that I want us to tease out. All right, so here's what it says. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar, and Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with, oh, so, sorry, I think I want to pause there. Yes, I do want to pause there. All right. Um, Here's, here's what we see, all right? So remember, in our previous story, Abram fled to Egypt because there was a great famine in the land, all right? Now, Abram leaves Egypt, and he heads back to his original spot, a place between Bethel and Ai, all right? And so Abram's got everyone with him. He's got his wife, Sarai. He's got all of his possessions. He's got his nephew, Lot, that's there. And so the question would seem like everything's good, right? Well, it's wrong. What we see here is there's actually conflict that's taking place. We see verse 7 that there was quarreling that's taking place between Abram and Lot. And we need to ask the question, why? Like every single time that we experience conflict in our life, we always are asking, like, why is this going on? What's the reason for conflict? Well, we get a couple of answers here. First, you get a surface level answer, and then you also, we need to ask a, a question for a deeper answer, right? So the surface level answer is that they've run out of space. Here's what verse 6 says. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together, all right? So essentially, here's what's happening. They're living on top of each other, all right? God's been so generous to both Abraham and Lot that he gives them tons of things. They have gold, they have silver, they have flocks, they have people that are a part of their, their clans here. And so um, they're living on top of each other. And this is my, this is my family's experience um, in our previous house, all right? So here's, here's the idea. Here's what was going on in our previous house, all right? So it was about a, it, it, 
it, on Zillow, it would show about 1,300 square feet. It was more like 900 to 1,000 living square feet, all right? Two bedrooms, one bath. We buy the house when Cherish and I, um, she was pregnant with Seth. When we moved out, we were pregnant with our last shepherd. So we had three kids that lived in the house at the time, and Cherish was pregnant with our fourth, all right? And so as you walked into the house, the play space was the entryway, all right? And so it just felt like you were constantly living in a field of landmines, right? Like you just had toys that you're constantly trying to navigate your way through. We shared closets with our boys. Our closets, all of our clothes were in the boys' closets in their bedrooms, all right? So imagine sleeping kids trying to get up get ready for work, having to sneak into the room, pull out your clothes because I often forgot to do it before they went to sleep. And so it was constantly just trying to navigate the creaking floors, making sure you're not waking up any children, trying to get all of that. And then I can't even start with the bathroom, right? Like you have five people that live in one house, one bathroom, my poor wife trying to navigate this. There was just constant conflict whenever you live on top of each other, right? There's just constant conflict that's happening. So at the surface level, that's what's happening here with Abram and Lot. God's been so kind, so generous to them. You've seen more and more that God has blessed them with, and so they're living on top of each other here, and conflict resides. But the Bible tells us that there's a deeper answer to why there's conflict that's going on here between both Abraham and Lot, and we see that in James 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? All right? So look, yeah, they're living on top of each other. There's conflict that's happening. But the real reason why there's conflict that's happening is because they have sin that resides in their hearts. That's what James is saying to us whenever he says that you have passions that wage war within you. Look, there's spatial problems that set the stage for conflict here in this passage, but our hearts are where conflict really starts. And this is because of the sin problem that we all have inside of us. An old pastor put it like this, all right? Our hearts are sin factories, all right? So here's what happens inside of us. We have the tendency to take good things and then we take them and we turn them into ultimate things. So we take the good things of our life and we set them on the conveyor belt, the factory of our hearts. And so they ride the conveyor belt until they become the idols that we revolve our whole life around. The good things that he's blessed us with now become the ultimate things. And what's that thing that resides or happens after that? It's conflict. It's because of the sin that dwells deep inside of us. So let me give you a couple examples. We don't know exactly what are the things that are residing in the hearts of Abraham and Lot here or their herdsmen. Um, we could probably assume, but I think the thing that we need to wrestle with more is what's actually residing in our own hearts. That's where we really need to go. And so here's a couple examples, all right? Taking good things and making them ultimate things. So... For your own life, what happens when the luxuries that we like to call essentials in our life, what happens when these things break in your life? Hypothetically, an air conditioner, all right? If you know, you know, right? Um, what happens to your home whenever the luxuries that you live with break? What happens? Conflict, doesn't it? Conflict happens. There's things that we have 
place that are good things in our life that become ultimate things. And here's what that conflict shows us is that we have a tendency to idolize comfort and we don't know how to handle normalcy, let alone hardship. It brings about what's really residing in our hearts. So imagine another situation. You have a date night scheduled and then the babysitter falls through. What happens inside of you? What happens inside? Who gets it? Maybe that's a better question. Who's the one that gets it? You ream out on. Is it the babysitter or is it your spouse, right? Who are you saving up the tension for? Here's what may be going on inside of your heart. You have grown to so deeply love pleasure and you can't live with disappointment or pain in your life. Can I keep going? You have a project that goes, all, that goes without a hitch at work, um, but then the next staff meeting rolls around or your next team meeting. I mean, this project has been pristine, right? It goes exactly as planned, ton great results for the company, but it doesn't get mentioned at all at the next team meeting. What happens inside of your heart? How do you deal with being overlooked and not getting the recognition you believe you deserve? Conflicts reside, like what's going on inside of you, all right? All right, imagine you're a planner. Some of us, we love, we're meticulous, right? Like we love having everything teased out to the very smallest iota, but what happens when someone comes in and offers just a nice suggestion, you know? They want to come up and, yeah, that sounds nice, but what about if we add this to the schedule? What goes on? inside of you. Maybe there's something that's going on inside of your heart where there's a control issue and you don't know how to live with unpredictability. Ambiguity just sets you ablaze, right? Last one. What about when you feel left out? A group of people that you love, they go and do something, but you don't get the invite to go and be a part of it. And so you feel left out. How do you respond? What goes on in your heart? Our society tells us we deserve acceptance and that others are responsible to give it to us. But here's what's really going on in a lot of us is that we fear rejection and we don't know how to deal with it. And so what happens? The conflict happens in relationships. So like, look, there's always a stage for conflict, just like what we see in this passage. There's always a stage living on top of each other or other things that are happening in your life. There's always a stage, but there's always a confrontation and an invitation whenever conflict stems up in your life that is asking you to pause, to set things down, and rather than pointing a finger, to sit down and go through a heart exam. It's wanting you to take a real, clear long look at what's residing in your own heart. There's this, it's a gift that God gives to us in order for us to lay down the things that we have taken that are good things and turn them into ultimate things and take a good look at them so that we can finally lay them down. That's what's happening. This is why we experience conflict. It's actually not a reason for us to get upset with God, but it's God's gift to us in order to look at the things that we've taken that are good, turned into ultimate, so that we can come back to what the true, genuine, ultimate thing in this life is, and that's the living God. So what is it for you? 
What is it in your life that tends to lead towards conflict? It's the question and the invitation that I believe this part of the passage is trying to leave there for us. What is it for me that constantly tends to bring about conflict in my own life? All right, so as we're continuing on, that's the question of why do we experience conflict? It's because we have a sin problem. The next question that we have to ask is how do we resolve conflict? What does that look like? What is a healthy pattern? I mean, there's so much money that goes into conflict resolution in your workplace. Billions of dollars throughout the United States are spent on this very issue. Everyone's trying to find the answer. Does Abraham seem to give us a different way? And I believe that he is a good model for us. What we see in verses 8 through 9, how do we resolve conflict? Let's take a look at Abram's life. Verse 8 says this, So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. And if you go to the right, I will go to the left. All right, so here's the two tendencies that we have with conflict in our life, all right? We have two tendencies. Here's the regular things that we go to when conflict arises in our life. One is we avoid, all right? You ghost people, right? I don't want to have to deal with you, so I'm just going to ghost you so I can avoid the problem. Or when you get around them, you don't address the tension. You just try to live as if there's been no problem whatsoever. That's the first one. The second one is that we can have a tendency to rush into it. Some of us are like, man, we just want to go take the hill. You've offended me. I'm going to come in. I'm going to let you know about it. I'm going to wield the hammer, right? You're just a whack-a-mole. Like you're just coming in. It's like, I'm going to let everybody have it. Just wielding the hammer all over the place. Both are destructive. Look, and frankly, they're both immature, A lot of the ways that we address and we deal with conflict in our life has nothing to the effect of what it looks like for the character of God. But I believe in this passage, we see in Abram a alternate way for us to deal with conflict resolution in our life, all right? So Abraham has the hard conversation with Lot, and we see him take three steps, all right? Step one is this, verse one, let's not have quarreling between you and me. Then there's step two. We are relatives. He, he looks at his, this lot. He looks him in the eye and he recognizes who he's dealing with. And step three, isn't the whole land before you, all right? So essentially, here's what Abraham's saying. Here's what Abraham's saying. I don't want this anymore. You're more important to me. I'm gonna put your interests above my own. Here's what's happening, all right? There's vulnerability. He's letting his guard down. He's setting down the weapons, right? Rather than entrenching myself, I'm actually coming and I'm stating with vulnerability, transparency. Here's what I want. I'm ready for this to stop. This isn't how I want to continue to move forward. Second, you're, you're more important to me. Look, here's what he does. He says, people are more important to me than possessions. I, I value my relationship with you over the things that I possess, He lays those things down, and then I put your interests above my own. There's a sense of humility and, look, self-denial that happens here when it comes to Abram's life. Look, he's the one that's received the promise, not Lot. But who's the one that lays the, the preference down here? It's Abraham, not Lot. 
And it's because he understands what needs to take place in order for this conflict to be resolved. And he's willing to sacrifice in order for it to take place in his life. Now look, has anyone ever done this to you? All right? Have you ever been in a conflict with somebody where they come and with a sense of vulnerability say, hey, look, I want to lay down the weapons. I want to lay down the weapons. I want to stop being entrenched. I want to lay before you. I don't want to fight anymore. Let's find a way forward. They come and they say, you're more important to me than the, the issues of this conflict that are taking place. And then lastly, that they're willing to put your interests above their own. Have you ever, have you ever had anybody do this? All right. Like, if you have, like, it's incredibly disarming, isn't it? It's incredibly disarming, all right? So here's a, an instance in my own life, all right? So working at a church, on, at a church on staff, um, pretty large church, and so we had office buddies, all right? So I have an office buddy. He works catty corner across the room from me. I'm overseeing groups for our main location at this church. This other guy oversees all the benevolence mercy ministry, all right? So I'm new to this position. The history for my role and how these groups would participate in his ministry is that they would be the ones that were dependent upon seeing the benevolence ministry of the church move forward. All right, so I step into this. I'm trying to bring new initiative. I'm trying to do things that are moving this ministry of groups forward in the life of the church. Meanwhile, he's calling shots for the groups that I'm supposed to be overseeing, right? What happens? Conflict, all right? Not healthy conflict. You know what happens? So this is announced at a church of about like 1,800 people at that point in time. It's announced on stage. I have no idea that this is about to be announced, that the groups that I'm supposed to be overleading are now being called and to step into and leave forward a new initiative that's happening Mercy Mondays on Monday nights. And so this has been decided without having come to me to talk to me about it. You know what happens? I come in, I am on fire on Monday morning, but I am completely unhealthy, right? I cold shoulder, really short, quick in my response to him. And here's what happens, all right? His name is Josh Thomas. Josh, Josh Thomas recognizes what's going on inside of me. And he comes and he says, Josh, I look, I don't know what's going on, all right? I don't know what's going on. I can tell you're upset. I can tell you're frustrated. And it seems to be bent towards me. And he's like, look, I, this is not the way that I want us to move forward, all right? I know, you, I know you're new in your role. I know I'm new in my role. Like, I want to find a way forward. Like, look, Josh, like, us being in the office together and moving ministry forward is more important to me than me trying to win with whatever is going on in this particular issue. Like, look, Josh, whatever has happened, I'm willing to like set that thing aside so I can help you in moving what you feel is being offended here and you moving your obstacle and your goal and your dream forward. That's what Josh did to me. It completely changed the tone of the conversation. It, it, it it was a way in which God humbled my own heart in the way that he stepped in. That's what you see with Abraham happening here with Lot. Abraham steps in and he says, look, I don't want to fight anymore. This quarreling that's going on between us, like, I, I don't want this. This is not what I want moving forward. I'm willing to expose myself here 
in order so that we can move forward. I, I love you more than the issues that are at hand here at place. The herdsmen that we have in both of our tents, like let's figure this out between you and me. This is, you're more important, all right? In fact, look, I'm willing to give you preference of the land. Whatever you wanna do, like look, you choose. You get the first shot, you get the first call. Like where do you wanna go? You go to the left, I go to the right. You go to the right, I go to the left. You make the call. It's your preference, your interest above my own. Now, that's the way forward, all right? If you have any hope in conflict, you have to have someone that's willing to take the first step in the midst of the conflict in order for there to be resolve. Now, but here's what I love about this passage and what I love about the Bible is it's brutally honest, all right? Because every single, just because you take these steps doesn't mean that you're going to get the response that you desire, all right? And that's why we look at verses 10 through 13, because what we see here is that it doesn't end clean, all right? Showing the humility and self-denial, it doesn't bring the results necessarily that I I think maybe Abraham was looking for here, because Lot is kind of a punk, (laughs) all right? Uh, He takes advantage of this whole entire situation. Here's what it says in verse 10. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as the Zoar was, look, well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This is recalling back before sin entered into the world, talking about the, the rivers that flowed out of the garden of Eden. In the land of Egypt, where Abraham has just come from, where he's trying to find respite from the famine in the land, this place is luscious. It's green. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And look, verse 11. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for, look, himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. And look, here's maybe an idea of where uh, Lot's heart is bent. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Who does Lot look out for here? Himself. He takes advantage of the whole entire situation. What does Abraham do? He comes, he, is, he shows vulnerability. Look, I don't want this anymore. I don't want the quarreling that's happening between our two clans. Um, I'm will, like, I love you more than the issues that are at stake here. I'm willing to give you first preference. What does Lot do? Okay, great. Um, I, I'm going to choose that land. That looks awesome. I'm going there. I, I, in fact, I'm, I'm going today. Like, Later, Abraham, thanks for all that you've done for me. I'm taking all of my stuff, all the things that I've benefited because I've come here with you. I'm taking all that stuff. I'm going to that land, deuces. That's what happens here. It doesn't end clean. Look, this is really helpful for us, all right? Because here's the reality. Just because we take those steps that Abraham does in order to see conflict resolved in our life does not mean that it's going to end the way that you want. Lot functions off of sight, not faith. Abraham, trying to function out of faith and not sight, places himself out there and he gets taken advantage of. But look, it's still the way forward. This is still how you are to deal with conflict. If you look at this, who models the character of God? Is it Lot? No, it's Abraham. And he's willing to put himself out there in order so that he can see a person that he cares for and model the character of God 
will be the rule and the pattern of his life, all right? So look, this begs the question, all right? It, this sounds really great, but we all know what the experience is like. So what's the key to conflict then? Like if this is the, the case, if this is what, if we try to function as Abraham, at times it is going to bring the resolve to conflict that we want in our life, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be demanded or it's going to, not going to be uh, perfected. It's not going to be the exact result that you can expect in every situation. Then how do you keep going? How do, you, how do you keep going and trying to practice what Abraham has done here without growing cynical? How do, you, how do you keep going forward where you're trying to engage in conflict, where you don't just throw in the towel and just kind of, I'm just going to look out for myself, forget this other person, and I'm just here for me? Well, I think we find the answer in verses 14 through 18, all right? So what's the key to conflict? Let's look at it. Verse 14, after Lot had prepared for, uh, had separated from him, the Lord said to Abraham, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up. And walk around the land. It's like he's just an invitation. Like, hey, like, go. Take a look at it. It's awesome. Get out there. Go take a look at it. Take a look at this land I'm giving you. Through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre and at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. All right? So, like, before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of it, I want to give you a, a bit of my wrestle this past week. All right? So, Full, like the, just trying to be really honest, full disclosure, I really struggled with this part of the passage this last week, all right? And here's why. It reads like God approves Abraham because of his actions. Do you get that whenever you read this? Like as I was reading through this, whenever you look at this, it, it reads, here's how it reads to me, all right? It reads as if Abram does something that brings delight to God, and because of that, God approves of Abraham, He's like, hey, I'm going to continue to move forward with the promise for the land that I'm going to give you. Like, go take a look at it. Explore it. It's great. It's luscious. Amazing. It's all going to be yours. Like, you're, the people that are going to come from you are going to be immense. It's because you have, you have delighted me, Abraham. You've done exactly what I've looked for. And, like, this kind of conflicts with a lot of what we believe about salvation, doesn't it? Like, so I was, I was wrestling with this. I was actually talking in my office with Lucas this past week of like, how, how do I resolve this? Like, what does this look like? How, how do I do this? What, it all changed for me when I kind of went back to the beginning of the story, all right? It all changes as you read the story in light of the previous one, all right? So what happens in the previous story? At the end of Genesis chapter 12, the famine, severe famine hits the land. And so Abraham gets his family, he gets his possessions, he gets Sarai, he gets Lot, he takes them to Egypt to try to flee the famine. And what happens here is faithlessness, right? Abraham functions without faith. What happens is they're on the way to Egypt. He devises a lie that he's going to tell all the Egyptians that Sarai is his sister. He comprises, he compromises Sarai's safety for his own. He puts her in a terrible situation to look out for his own skin, and then he covets possessions. He knows that he can get something by 
scheming this lie and getting possessions from those people in the land, knowing that if he is Sarai's brother, they're going to have to come and barter with him in order to take Sarai as his wife. He is a coward. He is faithless. There is nothing that resides that resembles the character of God in Abraham's life and how he functions. And God has to intervene here. He has to come to Pharaoh in a dream in order that Pharaoh and his house aren't consumed with plagues. And so Pharaoh comes to Abraham and is like, why did you lie to me? Look how you've compromised my whole entire household. Like, take your wife, take all your possessions, take Lot, get out of here. Faithless. But consider how the story opens here. Go back to verses 3 through 4. So Abraham, he's traveling back from Egypt to the land of the Negev, where he came from. And look what happens in verse 4. And Abram called on the name of the Lord. The reason for God's approval here is not because of the work that Abraham had done, but it's because of his repentance. So here's what we need to recognize here before we can move on to what the key to conflict is, all right? God doesn't approve of Abraham because Abraham handled Lot properly. That's not why God's approval is upon Abraham. Abraham handled Lot properly because he had a heart of repentance, That's why he was able to navigate the conflict in the way that he could with Lot here. That's what God approves of. Not because Abraham did everything well in the the eyes and the sight of God. It's all because Abraham repented that he was actually able to carry out conflict well with Lot in his very own life. And so here's what we need to see, all right? The approval of God on your life stems from repentance, not from anything that you can do before him or earn or deserve his care and concern for you. But look, this also streams throughout all of your entire life, including your conflict. You want to know what the key to conflict is, long-term and short-term? It's repentance. It's repentance. So look, it's because the key to Conflict in your life is repentance that in short term you can identify and turn from the sin that conflict exposes in your life. If conflict is God's gift to expose your heart, then it's because of repentance that you can look at your sin and then lay it down before God and turn in a different direction. That's what Abraham does here, right? Like Abraham sees what he's done in the land. He leaves Egypt. He's walking, right? He's, he's walking in sin as he goes to Egypt. God confronts him. He turns away from it, but he turns to the living God because he calls on the name of the Lord. He's in action saying, look, I'm going away from you, God, as I go to Egypt. As he goes away from Egypt, he's turning back to the Lord, and it is clear proclamation of his trust and dependence on the living God. And look, it's the same way for you and me, and it's what is actually allows him to deal with his own heart sin issues that can then now come and have a hard conversation with Lot so that he can try to work reconciliation in his life that has already been won for him in his relationship with God. But look, it's also long-term how we live into conflict because, look, we need to understand the difference between righteous repentance or like a religious repentance and a genuine repentance, all right? Because, look, there's a way 
that you can try to live as if Abraham has here that is a religious type of repentance that's manip, manip I can't say that word. I tried practice it before I got up here. Manipulative, all right? There's a way that you can look at the pattern here and you can try to reproduce it in your life, but it's not out of a heart of humble conviction, but it's because you're trying to get what you want. There's a way that you can try to reenact what Abraham does here that's selfish, that is self-righteous, that you're trying to prove to God that you have your stuff together. And look, it only leads to cynicism in your life. But the heart of genuine repentance always has as its aim likeness with Jesus. Genuine repentance always looks at Jesus and says, I want to be like you. I, I don't want this life that I have aimed for, taking the good things and making them the ultimate things in my life. I see how that has let me down. Look, God, there is nothing that I can do before you that's gonna actually earn your approval in my life. And it's because of the approval that I have in the life and work of Jesus that I can actually pursue repentance as a whole way of life. And that includes the way that I engage in conflict. That is the key for how you move forward in a life where conflict is inevitable, the long term is that you live a life of repentance where you can look at your sin and not be overwhelmed because you know how much greater the grace of Jesus is in your life. Look, the idea of genuine repentance looks that Jesus has the humble conviction and the denial of self that did not that we should have had, but he had fully and was willing to fully expose it for our benefit, all right? So think about the list that we work through, what conflict exposes about our own hearts. Look, Jesus laid down his comfort for you and me. Jesus, the God of the universe, came from heaven to earth, laying down his comfort for you and me. What did Jesus do with pleasure? He denies it in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and leaves without sin. And we can't go a day, a moment, without struggling with our own sin. Jesus came not to, ser came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But yet we can't get over the idea that we get overlooked in our workplace. Jesus came and he was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. On the cross, Jesus is willing to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He receives rejection so that you and I never have to receive rejection. Everything that Jesus has done for us, we look at what he has done and we say, I am so completely sinful. My heart really is a sin factory. And I can't do anything about it. There's nothing, absolutely nothing I can do about the state of my sin problem and conflict is constantly reminding me of the state of my own heart. Who out there can help me? And you see the Jesus. You see Jesus, and you, as you're walking away from him, you're confronted by your own sin, and you turn back to this Jesus, the living God, who can offer you the life that you need, the grace that you cannot live without, the mercy that no one else is willing to give you because you haven't earned it yet. Jesus does all of that for you. 
and genuine repentance says, I want to be more like him. Not I want to use his schemes to get what I want. I want to look like him. All right, so look. Here's what I want to do, all right? Um, as we close out, all right? I want to just give some space, all right? Here's, if you have a pulse, you've had conflict today. <laughs> some of you have unresolved conflict. And so I want to give some space for you to wrestle with a couple of questions, all right? We're going to have a couple of questions up here. The band's going to come. They're going to, like, play their instruments for a little bit. They're going to, like, tickle the ivories and stuff. Um, they're going to come up here. I just want you to look at these two questions and just, like, in a posture of, like, prayerfulness and meditation. Like, just think on these two questions. And my hope is that there's been something that's stirred up in your own life. So repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards God. Where must I turn, right? As we work through a list, is there something that stood out to you? And then the second question is always a matter of faith, right? What must I believe? What's actually true? God is the God of truth that wants you to identify what's false in your life and turn what's false to what's true, all right? What is it that you need to turn from? The things that you've believed that are lies in your life that you need to turn and trust in Jesus. Abraham functioned out of faith, not sight. We want to model that of Abraham, not of Lot. And so what is it that you've been chasing in this life that you need to turn from, the truth that you need to believe in the midst of your idolatry. Take some moment, take a moment to reflect, and then I'll come over and pray us and lead us in communion.